Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, April 20th. I'm your host, Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, we're going to keep riding the special election train. We've got a lot to recap from Tuesday's special all-party primary in Georgia's 6th District. We talked about it a little bit on the last few podcasts, but now we have some actual numbers to dig through. It's going to be a very interesting show. And speaking of numbers, we have first quarter FEC reports to dig through. Like we always say, we're the type of folks who stay up late on Friday nights digging through FEC reports, and we have actually done that this week. So we're going to talk a little bit about the big money and the small money that President Donald Trump is raising and what it's says about his relationship with the rest of the Republican Party right now. And finally, big news in the media world this week, Bill O'Reilly out at Fox News, and we've got one of the experts on Fox and the whole media ecosystem here to talk about it. Two quick housekeeping notes before we get going. First of all, remember, you can email us if you have questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And if you have time, please take a moment and write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, in addition to subscribing and rating us. Before we get started, let's welcome the team. Hello, Senior Politics Editor Charlie Mintessian. Hello, Scott Bland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, media Reporter Hadas Gold is here. Hello. And uh, Chief Investigative Reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. All right, let's jump into our first data point with everyone. As we said, that's 48.1. That is the percentage of the vote that Democrat John Ossoff got in Georgia's special House primary Tuesday, narrowly missing out on an outright win. Instead, he'll go on to face Republican Karen Handel in a runoff two months from today. So, Charlie, you've been watching this very closely. What does Ossoff's performance in this district, a battleground for the first time ever, tell you? And what are you watching over the next two months? Well, it tells me that uh, Republicans need to be sweating right now. I think, you know, if you're looking at it on a scale of one to 10, it's not a, you know, uh, wet your pants, five alarm fire, 10 uh, in terms <laughs> of the panic level for Republicans, but it's up there. It's got to be around a seven or eight because when but you no look pants at this- sweating. <laughs> no pants wedding yet, but uh, I think they're almost at that threshold because this was a, a race where Democrats really uh, put a lot of resources into it. And this was a tough district. You know, this was a place that Tom Price used to win two thirds of the vote with ease all the time. Uh, it is a Republican district. It's not competitive at all. Uh, and the interesting thing is it's also one of the counties in that district is occupies a storied place in the formation of the uh, modern Republican Party. I'd argue Cobb County. It's a place that produced Newt Gingrich. It's sort of a, a beachhead of Southern uh, suburban Republicanism. And for Democrats to be competitive and almost pull that off, because as, as you know, uh, by getting 50 percent, Ossoff would have won that seat outright. By almost getting there, that really tells you something about the level of energy and rage at the Democratic grassroots just to get that close. And I think uh, there are two schools of thought in the Republican Party about that race now, one of which is sort of the 
Uh, oh, it's just a flesh wound. Uh, there's nothing to worry about here. Nothing to see oh my here. God, great reference. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for appreciating that. Uh, and then the other one is, and, and we had a story about this last night, which was, and it's mostly the professionals, the operatives and the strategists that are like, we need to be very worried about this. Doesn't mean we're going to lose the House majority in 2018, but like this really uh, is a warning signal. Yeah, I think like so much attention has been paid to what it says about the bases of the respective parties and how energized they are and what we can expect to see in the in the 2018 midterms from them. But I think there's perhaps more to learn from it uh, from the perspective of what it says about Trump's political operation, which is almost non-existent. I mean, this is the type of thing. It's Twitter. You, yeah, exactly. It's Twitter. He went on Twitter and he did a robocall. Uh, but like this is the type of race, if you have the White House and you have both chambers of Congress and you have a lot of money in your congressional campaign arms, this is the type of race where you should go in and try to clear the field. Because if you don't, you have this fractured field and this is what happens. They, as far as I could tell, made really no efforts to do that. And to the extent that they were trying to signal that there were parts of the Trump organization that were trying to signal uh, a preferred candidate, it was conflicting. I mean, you had Corey Lewandowski supporting one candidate. You had a Trump digital or Trump's early digital director, uh, Matt Brainer, working for another candidate and on down the list. And you had the different candidates sort of saying different things on the Republican side about to what extent they align with Trump and embraced him. Amy Kramer, the former Tea Party Patriots uh, founder and activist, she she was trying to run as a Trump candidate. She got like several hundred votes. I mean, she got absolutely crushed. So um, I think that there, there's a warning here to be gleaned from, from the, the Trump side about the lack of uh, really political infrastructure. If they think that they're going to go into primaries, as Trump has hinted and as Dan Scavino, his social media director, famously hinted on Twitter, potentially violating the Hatch Act, they need to actually beef up and and show some aptitude on this front. But can I, I just cannot imagine that in that district, a Republican wouldn't ultimately beat uh, Ossoff, I feel like the attention paid to this primary in particular, uh, the money that was poured in, will the Republicans not all just band together behind uh, handle the Republican uh, now the now the Republican candidate? My guess is yes. Like I think it's a really uphill battle. There was one shot to win this seat and it uh, was in the opening primary and they're not going to do it in the runoff and because I just can't I haven't heard anyone state a theory of the case for how Ossoff gets from 48.1% to uh, 50% plus one vote or whatever it's going to take to win that race because if you so there's maybe what maybe 1500 other scattered Democratic votes that he didn't pick up uh, okay let's just let's stipulate like 5149 basically if you add all the Republican votes together and all the Democratic yeah, votes and together and so there's just not a lot of Democratic votes out out there for them to pick up. And now once you get rid of that splintered field and once you have the panic factor set in on the Republican side, because there were a lot of local Republicans that just refused to believe that a Democrat and especially a Democrat like John Ossoff with Hank Johnson ties and with all, you know, uh, with with a kind of a, you know, blown up or exaggerated resume that he'd be competitive in this place. And so now they know. Didn't even live in the district. Yeah. And so now they know he could win. But one point I would make uh, on Trump, though, uh, I, th- I give him credit for one thing. Like, I don't think you can really do the old school field clearing the way you used to. I mean, the mo- modern parties aren't set up that way. Uh, and activists just will not 
take to that. I mean, Democrats do it. Democrats did it during the Obama years in congressional specials. Uh, who was the guy in Pennsylvania who they sort of forced aside and he ended up getting some appointment in the uh, – In Colorado, it was Andrew Romanoff. That, right. Well, except they, they didn't they didn't force him aside. They they tried to and right. he, would, he wouldn't do it. Well, that's what I mean. The Trump the Trump team made no effort to do that. You but know? here's the thing. That era ended in the, in the Republican Party uh, during the Obama era, right? I think we can all agree that uh, that really backfired on them and the Republicans don't even try to do that anymore. Democrats, I don't. You're right, but with a strong president, they could f- f- clear field. They will not be able to in this next. And with money, you the, know what they, I mean. They, they will not be able to do that in the next money. year. But the the larger Trump point I wanted to make was I. You have to give him credit a little bit, I think, for uh, putting some skin in the game here. Uh, he they did not sit back on their hands uh, the way some presidents do and hoard all their political capital and say, well, you know, we don't want to weigh in and take an early loss. Trump was out there on Twitter. He did a robocall. It was very clear. Uh, that he was engaged in the race and willing to take uh, the bruising if he lost. The White House was also very engaged behind the scenes. Bannon was closely monitoring the uh, early voting returns. Reince was lobbing calls into Georgia. So, you know, they were watching it a lot more closely, I think, than people thought. And watching it and actually like wading into the fray to try to signal to the party brass down there, this is our candidate are, are different things. Well, not not necessarily for one candidate, though, just against Ossoff. Right. Charlie, I want to I want to jump in and offer the the counterpoint I think to to what you said about the the runoff. I actually that was do so nice. I actually I do think you say you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong and here's why. I actually do think that Ossoff has a has a chance. Uh, and we'll we'll see what happens. First of all, the runoff is 2 months long. That's an insane amount of time for I, I don't think runoffs take that long in any other state that has that kind of system. But whatever the case, there's there's still two months to go. So first of all, a lot could change in that time. We don't know whether Trump is going to be more popular or less popular or about the same as he is today. But that will obviously have a, a big effect on things. There's healthcare stuff now moving in Congress again, potentially. There's talk of a another uh, deal between the wings of the Republican Party to move a new Obamacare repeal bill. That could have a huge effect. But the thing from a kind of campaign tactics perspective that I'm watching is Karen Handel, the Republican nominee, won about 20% of the primary vote, right? And so there were a lot of Republicans running, as we just talked about. So she has to now gather all of those voters who supported other people to her. And what we're seeing today is that Democrats are taking this opportunity to jump in and they're going on TV immediately with a message that seems to me to be designed to prevent this from happening. They're going way back into Handel's career, back when she was Georgia's Secretary of State a decade ago, and calling her a big spending longtime politician. They've got all this stuff. There was expenditures on flights, a Lexus SUV, new furniture, stuff like that, that they're doing echoing Republican attacks on her during the primary to try and prevent her from cobbling together the rest of this Republican coalition that splintered, while Ossoff has a, you know, this legion of Democrats who are riled up to go up against Trump, handle, you know, Republicans had to pour a lot of money into this district to turn out their vote to prevent him from winning outright on Tuesday. Is Handel going to be able to replicate that as the focal point, I think, is still potentially an open question. I just have a very simple question the the runoff so we had the primary where you have to run 50% outright in order to actually win 
the entire thing. Now going into this runoff, is it still the 50% or is it just majority? Since it's top two, one, someone's going to get 50%. Okay. But uh, I guess my counterpoint to, to that, Scott, this, this is the counterpoint part where I Counter, say, counterpoint. Scott, you ignorant <laughs> slut. Name, <laughs> you ignorant slut. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's that if, if Democrats couldn't win, there was one shot. You know, that was when interest was maxed out. And it's not like Ossoff doesn't have more money than God. I mean, the guy was maxed out in cash. Uh, he, you know, setting all kinds of records. And you're not and, – and very frequently, as, as you know better than anyone, uh, very frequently turnout's going to drop drops off on the second race here. He had that one shot. I don't think you're going to see more Democrats turn out. I think he was pretty close to maxing out what he was going to get. I don't think there are going to be very many Republicans, even though you're, I think you're right. Uh, uh, Handel is a, a divisive character in the, in the Republican Party and has some unique vulnerabilities. But in that district, uh, I just don't see uh, him winning enough to oust her. Tell, tell us a little bit about Handel. I mean, the, one of the interesting things about this race, it's really been Ossoff and like backing vocals, really, for, for the last few months now as Democrats have gotten super excited about this. But now he has a co-star, right? Who Who is Karen Handel? You know, I'm not the best person to talk about her, her background, but what I do know about her is, you know, she, she is a, a divisive character within the Republican Party and also in general. She, uh, when she was head of, uh, what was it, the Susan Komen, Susan Komen Foundation, uh, she got into all that trouble surrounding uh, the funding for, for Planned Parenthood, wrote a book about it. Um, and so you've got abortion rights groups that uh, w- would be willing to pour a ton of money against her. But also within the Republican Party, uh, she has her detractors. She's run for lots of uh, offices before. She's a very familiar character. And, and she's one of those political characters who, on the one hand, is very good at what she does and can win races. But at the, uh, on the other hand, has taken a lot of hits over the years and has lots of scar tissue and lots of detractors. In fact, you know, one sign of that, I think, was really interesting uh, after she uh, was clear that she was going to win uh, the Republican nomination there. There was a, a, a little spat on Twitter after somebody, I, I don't know who it was, somebody called her, uh, you know, the epitome of a country club Republican, and people jumped on uh, that idea that she was a country club Republican. And, and everybody had all these different kinds of descriptions of what kind of Republican she actually was. She definitely fits kind of the, the bill of the more establishment type politician in Washington, but she has this history. And part of the reason that she hasn't already been elected to one of the other offices that she's run for in Georgia is because she has a history of going up against the Georgia Republican establishment. And so there's there's some, so that will some help friction her, right? there. Going up against Maybe. The- and she has, she has said that she would welcome Trump campaigning for her. So she's, if not embraced Trump, at least not given him the stiff arm. And so at this moment, when we are sort of seeing a, uh, a little bit of soul searching on the right about what the Republican Party should look like under Trump, she could potentially be well situated to Hadassah's point, having a little bit of that anti-establishment cred, as well as the ability and the network to sort of work the traditional channels. Additionally, I think she looks a lot like uh, Margot Martindale, who is the actress who plays Claudia the Handler <laughs> in The Americans. Go Google it. Great show. I know what you're talking about. I got it all DVR'd <laughs> That's this, great. this current season. But this, all this is happening, though, against the backdrop of uh, this is a region that is not uh, very Trump friendly. And this, I think, speaks to your point, Scott, about uh, I think if, if I was to concede one point of why uh, Ossoff could pull it off, it would be this. Uh, Georgia was a state that uh, Trump won, but he lost the core Atlanta suburbs and he actually lost Cobb County, which was probably the, I think the first it was uh, I think the first time, uh, you know, in, in decades that Cobb County actually went 
for a uh, for a Democrat for Hillary Clinton, which was sort of unheard of. He also uh, lost Gwinnett County nearby. It's not in the district, but it goes to show you it's representative. Um, yeah, I mean, it goes to show you that within those kinds of affluent, uh, highly educated suburban districts, there is a lot of animus uh, or ambivalence toward Trump, and you could envision a scenario in which maybe that bites. Uh, Karen Hando. I don't, but I think I'd have to, you know, in all honesty, concede that. Hadass, I want to close out the segment with a, kind of a, a media angle on this. The w- One of the things that really sent Ossoff on this meteoric path to all this money he raised and so on was an early endorsement from Daily Coast. And, you know, it's the, the liberal blog that got its start during the Bush years and has kind of built itself up into, among other things, a fundraising powerhouse. a reemergence powerhouse. now. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a reemergence of this left-wing blogosphere under Trump. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to watch, this, this reemergence of a, a power center on the so-called net roots. It is. Um, I, it's one of those situations where, just like during the Bush administration, MSNBC saw a rise. Rachel Maddow, right now, her ratings are going up uh, because it's clear that uh, when the opposition party to whatever you believe in is in a power, you're going to go where you feel safe and comfortable and happy and and where you where you might find your own sanity, as they might call it. I do think that Ossoff became this like media phenom because the, much of the media was looking for, and I hate to put all the media in on one basket, but let's say a lot of the networks, for example, they are looking to see what is going to be the first domino to fall in any sort of anti-Trump uh, sentiment. Seeking conflict. Yeah, right. seeking conflict. And this guy was like, you know, a media darling. He's super young. Uh, he's very articulate on television. Uh, I I forget which um, anchor or pundit said this, that they were they were like, oh, it's like Obama-like or something. Yeah, I saw that. That was, that was quite something. Uh, so again, I thought, were we listening to John Ossoff or Barack Obama? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only one who well, thought that as well. On a substantive note, Don, yeah. I think... But I clearly, though, yeah. no, no, let's be honest about it. He did sound that way. He is a Southerner from Georgia. Obviously, the former president had some influence over him because the cadence was almost exactly the same. Let's be honest about it. That just made you cringe a little bit. But that just goes to show you just like the amount of interest in in this, what otherwise would be sort of like, yes, it's a special election. But the amount of interest that you had, every single network had flown in people to Georgia to monitor this election, to watch it. There was like really long stories falling around the volunteers for him. Uh, because the media is is looking for when is going to be the first victim of Trump being in power. Well, let's transition from there into a data point about the Trump administration. That's $107 million. And that's how much money President Donald Trump's inaugural committee raised uh, for his inauguration in January, with big chunks coming from corporations and some of the biggest donors in Republican politics. Drain the swamp. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ken, we always write in the setup for these podcasts on Politico's website that we're the type of people who stay up late on weekends perusing FEC reports. So what have you learned about uh, the Trump administration from perusing FEC reports uh, this past weekend and into this week when we saw that inaugural report? Yeah, that's right. The Trump political operation. Kudos to them. They've been releasing their FEC reports well before the deadline, kind of throwing me off guard. You know, it's a tradition for these campaigns and committees to release their reports at like 11.59 and 59 seconds right before the, the midnight deadline on these uh, on these filing days. But the, the, the deadline was uh, Saturday night for the Trump campaign, and they filed Friday afternoon, bright and early, giving me a chance to enjoy my weekend. And uh, <laughs> they raised a lot of money. It was uh, They raised $13.2 million 
million in the first quarter of this year. Uh, that's between the Trump campaign and these two joint committees that they have set up with the Republican National Committee. Most of that in small donations, a lot of that coming through merchandise sales, uh, you know, around the inauguration, all the Make America Great Again merch that they were peddling online. Uh, nonetheless, it does show that they are keeping their small donor base uh, energized. And then uh, fast forward a few days to uh, Wednesday morning, they released their uh, the the fundraising report to the FEC for the inaugural committee, and they raised that that whopping one one hundred seven million. And, and that's a total mirror image, right? Yeah. We're talking small donors, right? That for was campaign. all from almost entirely from major donors, and there were some huge names on there: Sheldon Adelson, Las Vegas Casino mogul, five million dollars. That we think is the biggest check ever to inaugural committee, and then a lot of these. Real established names in Republican elite mega donor circles, Joe Kraft, the coal guy, a million dollars, Bob Mercer, who's uh, emerged as a key Trump guy, a million dollars. Actually, interestingly, uh, Lachlan Markey over at the uh, Daily Beast put together a list of all the NFL team owners who who gave uh, a million dollars. Bob Kraft, the uh, New England Patriots, uh, and, and, and seven other team owners gave uh, significant checks. So what this means is that they are kind of striking a good balance, and surprisingly so. We saw like fundraising is kind of a weakness for Trump during the campaign. He got crushed by Hillary Clinton. He didn't. He kind of offended a lot of the major donors. Now you have a lot of these folks coming home while he is still maintaining a small donor base. That's an encouraging sign for him and potentially a discouraging sign for whatever Democrat might run against him in 2020. Hadass, this fits into kind of a broader pattern, right, of the Republican Party coming Coming together. to Trump since since he's come together. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it. It is, and I wonder, Ken, is it normal um, for an inaugural committee from any president that you're just going to be drawing in a lot of these big names because everybody just wants to be on the list that says, "Yeah, we gave money to this presidential inauguration," or was there anything unique in that? Normally, you see every company under the sun throwing money at it. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Both those points are right, that in fact, it is the type of thing where you'd see companies that don't play in, you know, partisan politics and in a directly in an overt way coming to the table and writing big checks just because it's like something you have to do to maintain good relations with an incoming administration. That said, a lot of the, the, the corporate world had been leery of Trump during the campaign. And so it is telling that they're coming to the table. And it's also, I think that you're probably right. You're suggesting that maybe there weren't as many corporations writing big checks and I haven't done the math, but I think that you could probably go back to Obama's two inaugurations and see maybe more coming in from some of these corporations that are so protective of their images and don't want to be seen as allying themselves with a very controversial president like Trump is. Uh, but to me, it was it was most telling that some of these major donors, major Republican individuals, Individual donors came to play in a big way. Paul Singer is another one. Paul Singer was very leery. Paul Singer led the anti-Trump movement, <laughs> uh, funded a super PAC that went up against Trump, and he wrote a million-dollar check to the inauguration. That shows to me that some of these donors are making peace with or at least coming to grips with the fact that this guy is the head of the Republican Party now. Well, I also find it interesting, the whole, like, what are the Republicans coming together under Trump? We've seen a lot uh, on Capitol Hill, a lot of the sort of hand-wringing. We saw, obviously, the health care vote go up in flames. Uh, maybe they'll be reviving that now. I think that this, I, I could also see donors, you know, donating to the Trump inauguration saying, um, we have to, like, get everybody under the same tent because how horrible and embarrassing would it be for us if we controlled all of Washington and 
weren't all together on the same page and couldn't get things done legislatively. Yeah, I, I tend to think that um, Republicans are with him right now. The polling shows that. I mean, uh, eight out of ten Republicans in most polls uh, approve of his of his job performance. They're with him, but they're not walk on glass, walk through fire for him with Donald Trump. And, and you're beginning to see some signs of that, I think, of members not being uh, scared of, a, of uh, a president who's popular with their own party. You saw that in the healthcare fight. And also, I think you're seeing some subtle signs of it. Like I saw a couple of them this week that I just sort of made mental notes of. Uh, Joni Ernst in Iowa. Here's a Trump state. Uh, Trump's very popular there. And Ernst comes out and says, yeah, you know, uh, I'd like to see him spend a little less time in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, uh, coming up, Bedminster. Uh, you've got the summer <laughs> White House. <laughs> then you've got uh, uh, Senator Lankford in Oklahoma comes out of the town hall. Is like, yeah, maybe he ought to follow up on that promise to release his tax returns. And to say those kinds of things, um, you, you don't see senators in states where presidents are popular make those kind of statements because it costs some political capital. And they're only opening up because they're not scared of him and not completely devoted. So I guess my larger point is the Republicans have coalesced around him to a degree that we never would have believed, you know, say uh, a year ago. But having said that, I don't think they're uh, completely locked in uh, it to the point where they would support him uh, to the bitter end. Yeah, Charlie, you mentioned the tax returns and that sort of brings me back to this uh to the money, to the FEC reports, not that you guys steering it away from my specialty is anything that I hold against you. But no, that's one of the perks of working at Politico is the outraged emails at 1230 a.m. or 1 a.m. from Ken as he's plowing through these FEC oh, reports when they're up, filed. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, on, on the FEC report for the um, uh, inauguration, there was a little bit of hue and cry from the, the sort of goo-goo community, the good government community about him not releasing the Disbursement. So he only reported, which is all he's required to report, how much he accepted in contributions from these donors, but not how the money was spent. And this gets into a broader theme of transparency that I think is gaining some traction, particularly on the left. But even as you suggested with with some Republicans that Trump did not release the how he spent the money for the inauguration. He has not released his tax returns. He he said the administration said this week they will not release the White House visitor logs back to the campaign. They did not release their bundlers. So this is something that the left is really seizing on. We did see these tax day marches where, uh, you know, there were you know, fair, fair numbers of uh, folks turning out to demand that Trump releases tax returns. The question that I have, which is always the one that I have when we get into some of these issues that fire us up as reporters because we want to see full transparency. We want to see what's in those reports. We think we can get stories out of them. But I do wonder just how much do most voters care about this stuff? I would say typically less than 0%. Uh, the polls suggest that voters care deeply about transparency and good government, but then they go out and vote for people who are not transparent at all uh, and are committed to uh, cronyist government. Uh, but I do think the Trump thing could be a little different. Like, I guess my 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 the cynicism of my, of my point is that uh, I can't think of a single House or Senate gubernatorial race where it was decided by a transparency issue. Can somebody point one out to me in recent years? Or I mean, over you got to go. You got to go back, and this is like the John McCain theory that it, it like th these these issues sort of emerge from just like special wonky interest issues into like the four 
when there's a major scandal. That's when Maybe you see then. it. Watergate. Or like, you know, there there were certainly like the 2000 uh, presidential race on both sides, in both primaries. There were candidates that got a lot of traction running on like good government things, including McCain, who was running on, uh, you know, campaign finance reform, essentially. And then on the other side, Bill Bradley. And then you could argue, I mean, I think there, I'm not, I, I tend to agree with you, but that these issues are sort of overblown and they're a little bit of like a media creation. But you look at the, at the, 2016 presidential primaries, Bernie Sanders got a lot of traction running on like a transparency campaign finance reform, big money as too much influence type of platform. And so too, ironically, did Donald Trump. But he he lost and he also was promising free tuition and, and you know, right. I, I think uh, had a message that the real resonance was not on transparency. But I, I would just add that uh, I don't mean to downplay Show the importance. Show us your of, speeches. <laughs> I don't mean to downplay the importance of transparency. Uh, my, I think the danger for Trump is if he continues to pile up all these examples, uh, he he goes beyond the threshold of what we're accustomed to, and uh, I think things will change if some Republicans get on board uh, with Democrats, and and there's much more momentum, uh, bipartisan momentum that says like you, you simply you you've crossed the line, you cannot right. continue to operate like this. I definitely think that there will be. I, I don't think this would be the thing that would you know cause voters to abandon him. I could see it building though and i could see especially from the media the the i feel like voters do react to the what are they hiding uh kind of sentiment of what what why why aren't you comfortable with releasing visitor logs why aren't you comfortable with you know why are we getting more detailed readouts of your phone calls with foreign leaders and so i think most voters see it like you guys are just nosy reporters you want to know everything we trust donald trump we trust that he knows what he's doing and i'm sure you i mean obama administration claimed that they were trying to be the most transparent administration in history well, they claim that they were they okay they claim that they were um some would argue that they were not the most transparent <laughs> uh transparent in history so it's clear that every presidency deals with this um i think that when you have donald trump has some other issues that are still lingering around him from the campaign, such as um, the, the Russia stuff and the Russia investigations and um, the whole tax returns, everything. I think that continue to do other little things that they might not connect to them, like the visitor logs, can just build into this wider narrative. It's not just what are they hiding. It's like there has to be some bigger like underlying narrative that that voters can like extrapolate. Oh, that's what they're hiding. They're hiding something about Russia. He's hiding something about his financial connections to Russia by not releasing his tax returns. You know, or if you wanted to tamp down on rush speculation, you would release every day who's coming to the White because like, you could still meet with people outside of the White House, like as the Obama administration did. Yeah. As Obama administration did, Kellyanne, I, just this morning I was talking to somebody who was like, yeah, Kellyanne was sitting at those chess tables in Lafayette Park meeting with somebody. Oh, that's shady. That's like straight up from the Americans. If I could bring it back to the Americans, because that's what really matters here. Ken, one last point before we we wrap up the segment. We we were we talked about the the big money and the small money that Trump is raising. The I want to talk really really briefly about. It's not just Trump who's raising a lot of money right now in Washington. We've talked about how Democrats are kind of capitalizing on this enthusiasm among their base to raise a lot of money online, and yet the RNC, the party committee, the Republican Party committees for the Senate and the House are all out raising their Democratic counterparts, even though. Uh, Democrats have this big online donor enthusiasm right now. And th- uh, this is something we see when a party's in power, right? They, they're they the game in Washington now. And yeah, that's where that, the money's going. I think that should be a troubling sign for Democrats. It is. It does tend to be easier to raise money, both big and small money, 
when you're in opposition because people give when they're fired up against something. It's uh, almost more so than when they're fired up for something. And that's why, you know, I mean, you look at the, the sort of dawn of the big money era. A lot of people look at Citizens United. Right now, we're at a similar moment for Democrats and they're raising money. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, how to channel the money more effectively. But the fact that they're getting outraised, even if it's just looking at the uh, the the the, the uh, official party committee arms, I think, is a red flag. All right. Well, let's jump from there into our last segment of the week. We talked a little bit about uh, Democratic uh, or le- left-leaning media earlier. Let's talk a little bit about the conservative media. And our final data point is 21. That's the number of years Bill O'Reilly was at Fox News Channel, a tenure that ended this week as Fox severed the relationship due to revelations of numerous sexual harassment allegations and reporting about uh, settlements over the years. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. All right, go, go. In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and that is at... In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today, and we will leave you with a... I can't do it. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live! Hadas, you are, like, one of the foremost experts about this. Tell us about the significance of O'Reilly's departure. How does this fit into the greater upheaval right now at one of the bastions of conservative media? This is a really huge change for Fox News, and you could argue that it's actually a bigger change than Roger Ailes used to be, who founded and ran Fox News for so long, because... Roger Ailes obviously was such an important force, but he built Fox News so well that it can pretty much run on its own. Bill O'Reilly was actually a money-making machine for Fox News. It was his personality, it was his show that had the highest ratings, not only on Fox News, but in all of cable news. And his ratings were just going up. Fox News this first quarter of 2017 had the highest ratings of all of cable news history, as they were very excited about, um, as they should be. That is a huge, huge mark. And despite their aging population, despite people saying that they're outdated, despite people saying that, you know, the, the cable news will no longer survive, they are still raking in the money. And Bill O'Reilly was a big, big part of raking in that money. And then... And then, uh, so sexual harassment allegations against Bill O'Reilly are not new. Uh, in 2004, there was this very uh, a salacious case involving a former producer of his that was ultimately settled, now we know for $9 million, with uh, both sides uh, agreeing that there was no wrongdoing. Obviously, nothing really happened to Bill O'Reilly after that. You have to remember that Roger Ailes was in charge then, and Roger Ailes ran Fox News as his own kingdom, and Rupert Murdoch gave him full latitude to do so. Uh, and then what happened is that the New York Times started investigating settlements. It was it was about the money. So after Roger Ailes was pushed out, New York Times started looking into other settlements that might have been paid out to women uh, who alleged sexual harassment um, by Bill O'Reilly. And that, it's not like it was new. Andrea Tantaros, who also sued Fox News over Roger Ailes' harassment in her suit, claimed that Bill O'Reilly harassed her as well. Uh, and then this published uh, early April, New York, uh, Fox News knew it was coming. They still re-signed Bill O'Reilly. Now, there's some debate that that was a strategic move because they knew this could potentially blow up, but it would give them a little bit more leverage over him in a way to get him out and keep him quiet. Uh, but this came out. Uh, advertisers started fleeing. Uh, that obviously has an effect on them because even if you have high ratings, but you don't have any advertisers, you, you're what they call empty calories in TV news. And 
biggest thing I think you have to keep in mind is that the parent company of 21st Century Fox is looking to the UK where they're trying to buy a bigger stake in Sky News, which will really make them a global media brand. And the UK regulator, media regulator Ofcam has a fit and proper test, mm. which you can just imagine that in an English accent, where it's a very broad designation where they can they try to determine if this business is fit and proper enough to have, go into this huge deal, which would make them a huge conglomerate. And they're also thinking about media diversity in the UK. That decision is coming on May 16th. So the timing of all of this was incredibly important to why Bill O'Reilly is not returning to Fox News. And, you know, it's it's so uh, interesting. It sort of fits into like a cliche the way, way that we look at this. But like the left had really seized on O'Reilly. He was their like great white whale that they had been it's going. A great, for Media Matters, the liberal watchdog group of media, like Fox is the, has been their main target. And Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes, like for them, they are their but, greatest but, trophies. Yeah, right. So but let me ask you that. I mean, how much of it is is due to like pressure that was exerted, public pressure that was exerted on either their advertisers or Fox News from the left and how much of it had to do with just their own business decisions internationally right. and their ambitions. I, listen, I would argue that um, the Ofcom decision had more to do with it than necessarily the advertiser boycott because I'm sure they thought that maybe they could ride it out and eventually the advertisers, once things settled down, would come back. Um, but I think it's a combination of things. I, I, you know, you can never – in this situation, there are a few bigger elements. I think the advertisers were. I think Ofcam was another. I also think internally there were people who were saying, listen, you promised a a new kind of change in culture that was uh, – After, like, Roger, after Ailes. Roger Ailes. And if you let this guy just continue on and you knew about these settlements uh, – that's an issue. There's also, I'm less versed in this, but a corporate governance question where two of these, apparently these settlements or something came after Roger Ailes left. Were investors aware of it? Uh, how did that money play out? They're also being investigated by the U.S. District Attorney in New York. Obviously, it's a, if Hillary Clinton had been president, I think we'd, have, we'd be seeing a very different investigation into them right now. But uh, that's still something that they have to keep in mind. So there's a lot of these swirling business deals with them. You know, it wasn't necessarily a moral thing. It was a business thing. And I also wonder, like, I mean, first of all, I do think it is testament, despite the fact that I think the left is taking too much credit and Media Matters is taking too much credit for this, much as they did with Glenn Beck and much as they did with Roger Ailes. It, it is in some ways like a validation of Media Matters model and of David Brock's like vision. David Brock, we should say, is uh, had suffered a heart attack, is recovering from a heart attack. So, uh, you know, it, it's it, he, he's not uh, he, he's not necessarily like actively at the helm of it right now. But it does show that like there is a way to sort of leverage, uh, you know, public and and even more so like financial right. pressure to cow, uh, you know, major media entities into making a decision that is in some ways like averse to their uh, to their viewership or readership. Right. And listen, advertisers can be skittish and they will run away from something that will in any way connect them to controversy or connect them to something that uh, they're afraid might scare business away from them. Uh, you know, for advertising, they can go elsewhere. And so having that public pressure definitely has an effect on them. The, you know, grab your wallet campaigns and things like that does have an effect with them, especially if they think they can write it out. And especially if it's just a question of saying, don't put my ads on this show, but you can put my ads on your other high rated shows. And so this, this all comes during a moment of great upheaval in conservative media, right? Fox a few years back was really the, I mean, they're still the biggest game mm-hmm. in town, but they have a lot more competition now from Breitbart, from any number of, of other outlets. I mean, how, how does, how does this affect their positioning within that, 
uh, ecosystem. That ecosystem, yeah. I definitely think that you're right, that there is more competition. Also, you have um, various online shows. You have other personalities coming up. Fox is still by far the biggest game in town. And I'm sure you ask any of those um, writers or online commentators, you know, who run their own periscopes and live streams, that if you... Uh, if you gave them an option to be on Fox News, they would take it in a heartbeat. Because where else in the mainstream television news media can you go where you can reach a large audience that is of a conservative mind or that does not that does not believe or does not feel comfortable in the rest of the media landscape, no matter how neutral they might be. Uh, it's it's Fox News. How much overlap is there uh, in terms of the, the say the Fox audience and, and, and Breitbart? And what I mean by that is like my mom is like Fox sweet spot, watches mm-hmm. Fox all day and, you know, often comes to me and says, Fox is, you know, politicos, you know, liberal rag or whatever. Yeah. But I don't think she would even know what Breitbart was. Like, is is there competition between them? Is there a lot of overlap between the audiences? So I don't have exact data on this. I don't think there is. I don't. I I think there is obviously some overlap. I don't think there's a ton of overlap. I do think that um, Breitbart does a better job of probably reaching out to slightly younger uh, consumers uh, and a wider swath of them, especially as more people start to cut the cable cord. I definitely think that there is somewhat of an overlap and it's it's been interesting um, to see how some in the in like the kind of the Breitbart world, um, some have come to see Fox News as not entirely enough on the like the right side of history, uh, especially when it came to people like Megan Kelly. Uh, and even Bill O'Reilly, there was an article in Breitbart yesterday that said that, oh, the media is celebrating his demise as the bastion of conservatism, but actually he was more centrist. He was too centrist for us. So uh, I think there is definitely, especially when it comes to the digital aspect, Fox News does not have as strong of a digital presence as its competitors do online. People don't like Fox News obviously has a website. It's gets a lot of hits, but they don't have as much investment into it. Um, there has been some talk that that is something that's their next project is that they're going to be investing into their digital products. Uh, and I think they might see it as part of a survival mechanism. That's also part of buying Sky News is that Sky News is a global brand. Fox News does not have the same type of global reach as, say, a CNN. I was talking to analysts yesterday who still say that Fox News is very strong, but they're, they're thinking like next decades. They're looking far into the future. Uh, and that's part of buying Sky News and and the Murdoch sons taking over. So who's the next like cause celebrate for the left in conservative media who the, who <laughs> the left Hannity. is going to go after Sean Hannity because he's so close to Trump? He's very close to Trump. He's been there so long. Um, I think they'll have a more difficult time with Sean Hannity. But I could also see, I mean, Tucker Carlson has been in their eye also for a while. He's the new young star. He's taking O'Reilly's show. Right. You. I mean, just credit to Tucker Carlson. My gosh, a year ago, he was like the the washed up former Crossfire guy who's running Daily Caller hosted weekends on f- like Fox and Friends weekends. And in that time period, not only did he get his own primetime show, he has now moved up twice into the biggest time slots there are and his ratings are great so kudos to him yeah this is an incredible story and one that hadas is going to be uh continuing to follow so follow her on twitter read her stories on politico like this this is going to continue to reverberate for a while thank you for being here this week hadas we really appreciate it great to be here and charlie thank you thank you scott and ken thank you as always hey it was a fun time as always and as always thank you very much to our listeners remember please send in your questions to nerdcast at politico.com and subscribe and rate us and even write a written review if you have time, if you haven't already. 
Also, thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer Zach Montalaro. Take care, listeners. We'll talk to you again next week.